0: Amen. Well, uh, the last time I got to preach from this stage was December 27th, um, and I preached to an empty room pre-recorded because we weren't streaming at that point, and I was sure that that was going to be the last sermon that I would have to preach to an essentially empty room. Uh, February, I think, was about when we scheduled that I'd be preaching this weekend. Things were looking good, figured I'd be having to preach three times, but at least there'd be people in this space, Uh, And instead, I'm preaching to a worship team and Rusty and a couple of people in our tech booth, which was not necessarily my plan, but evidently the Lord's. So we'll go with it and we'll trust that that He is still working for good in it. So this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, this would be a good chance to go and grab one. We're going to be walking through this passage together. Um, And it's kind of fun as a pastor when you get the opportunity to preach a one off, something not part of a series, you kind of have free reign. And so as I was thinking about what I wanted to preach on, I, I was bouncing between a lot of ideas. Uh, most of Paul's writings kind of feel like a warm blanket to me, a pretty quick go-to when I get to preach. Um, but, but the more I was thinking about this week and this opportunity, I was going back to actually my candidating process here at New Life and thinking about um, one of the questions I was asked, I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but um, kind of what I wanted the, the thrust of my ministry to be, what I wanted to be uh, something people remembered about how I approached pastoral ministry. And my answer at the time, and my answer still today, is that I wanted people to see God as as bigger. Um, the question, obviously, is bigger than what? And, and the answer is bigger than they currently do, because that's something that can infinitely happen, right? This growth in our view of God. And so um, I landed on Isaiah chapter 6, in, in part because this passage has been a huge part of, of my personal journey. Leaving high school as an 18-year-old I had a really big view of Daniel and a really small view of God. And I'm not just talking about pride, which that was its own problem, but I'm just talking about a general sense that that I really was this great, powerful figure that could do what I wanted and that God um, was going to sign off on my plans and, and run with it and that I could go to him when I needed a little bit of assistance. Um, I don't think I ever would have acknowledged that. Was, like, looking back now, I can see that was my issue. But I think as an 18-year-old, I, I thought I, I probably figured that I had a decent view of God, and I think there's actually probably a lot of people in a similar situation not realizing that the way that they live portrays actually a very small view of God. As I look back now, I see that the, the mantra for my life um, was God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, which isn't not true. It's a true statement, but it's unbalanced. Um, these These wonderful Christian leaders a few hundred years ago got together and uh, asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that they came back with was the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's the balance I needed. I, I wanted that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, but not the my chief end. The only thing about my life that actually matters is that is, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. My, my view um, of God was predicated on my view of me. It, it was about me. I completely discounted how absolutely massive he is and he was. Isaiah 6 forces us to put that notion completely to death. So I'm going to start this morning by reading Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Send me. So this man Isaiah was was a prophet, uh, someone whose job essentially was to be the mouth of God to a people. He delivered the words of God, um, and with Isaiah specifically, his call was to point out the nation of Judah's sin and warn them of the judgment that was coming as a result of it. But he also had the message of hope, of eternal salvation, eternal atonement of sin in the Messiah who would come right? That's why we all know Isaiah chapter 53 so well. This vision, however, wasn't actually Isaiah's initial commissioning. He was already a prophet. We have five chapters before this of the things that he was telling to the nation of Judah. And that becomes an important detail because it means, to use our terminology, that Isaiah was already saved, right? This, this wasn't a conversion experience here in Isaiah chapter 6, really nice thing about this vision is that it gives us an exact date, essentially. Um, It occurred in the year that King Uzziah died, which we can date for certain to either 740 or 739 BC, so right about 2,760 years ago, give or take a year. And this vision begins with a massive contrast, right? So we read that in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, so, so King Uzziah, he's dead. This human king, gone. He's wiped out. He's not coming back. But the true king is still reigning from his throne in heaven. And, and this, to me, just immediately brings to mind the words of Psalm 146. It says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Perish. All of Uzziah's plans were gone, right? Anything he wanted to do with the kingdom, no hope anymore. The kingdom was taken, given to somebody else, but the Lord, his plans could not be stopped. He was still reigning, and that's what Isaiah is being reminded of in this vision. Interestingly enough, and, and Pastor Rusty read from this passage, I think just last week, um, Israel wasn't even supposed to have a human king, right? In First Samuel chapter 8, Uh, We read after Israel asks for a king, the the Lord responds to Samuel and says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So even as the human kings of Israel rise and fall, their true king never moved. He never stopped reigning. He was always on this throne in heaven. So Isaiah saw Israel's true king in the wake of the death of, of their human one. And, and verse 1 just wants to make that point so strongly. It's just full of language to show the majesty of God, right? A throne, high and lifted up, the, the train of his robe filling the temple, this massive, majestic, glorious robe filling the place that the, the people of Israel understood as the place where God dwelt with them. It, it's making the point that, that God is not just a king. He is the king over all kings. He has the throne that is high and lifted up over every other throne. But before we move any further into this vision, I think we need to address a potential question because those of you who who know your Bibles pretty well might kind of have alarm bells going off. Wait, no one is supposed to be able to see God, And, and you're right. John 1, verse 18, tells us that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. He has made him known. And it's the second half of that verse that's so important. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John is talking about Jesus, and he actually makes this even more explicit a little bit later in John chapter 12. He's referencing back to Isaiah chapter 6, speaking of Jesus, and John writes, Isaiah said these things, the words from Isaiah 6, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So Isaiah wasn't looking at God the Father. He was seeing the Son of God enthroned in this vision. That ends up mattering so much as we continue. It gives us such a beautiful picture. It's it's not the Father. He is seeing the enthroned Son, a a position that he still occupies today. Isaiah got a glimpse into something that all of us one day will get to see, this beautiful, beautiful image of the exalted Son. And, And this continues further in Isaiah 6, verses 2 through 4. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. All right, so we have a weird word, right? The word seraphim. Uh, This is actually the only place in all of scripture where this word appears. Um, And what's interesting is that the word the there in in verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. The the is not present in Hebrew. Um, So I actually think that that what Isaiah is doing here is giving them a title. That word seraphim most likely just means burning ones. It's like he was kind of just grasping at language to explain what he's seeing. Right? Above him stood burning ones. He's kind of just his best attempt at grasping the glory of these creatures he's looking at. Um, there's lots of ideas as to why Isaiah maybe picked this title. I think it probably has to do with what one of them does a little bit later to him in the vision. They bring a coal, and in his mind, they would have burnt him, burnt his lips with it. But, but what's more important about the seraphim is that these are not fat babies. Okay, we need to get that image of angels completely out of our mind. It, it completely ruins these pictures we we have this weird medieval Victorian thing, right? Fat baby, diaper, little bow floating around the throne of God. Uh, it, that's it, it's not right. I, just, I promise you, that is not what they look like. We are not going to get to heaven and see fat floating babies. These are glorious, glorious angelic beings, right? Whatever these seraphim are, they are they're they're angelic. They're heavenly, um, and and we know from other places in Scripture that that angels are impressive enough to actually lead really solid believers to attempt to worship them. We see this in in Revelation chapter 19, uh, the apostle John who saw Jesus transfigured, right? He saw Jesus in his glory. And and we read in, in the book of Revelation, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So these seraphim, whatever they are, are are incredibly glorious beings in their own right. There's something that that humans don't really know how to interact with, leading to incredibly solid Christians to literally turn to idolatry, just trying to process how amazing they are. And here they are, right? The verse says that they're they're standing. Um, around the Lord. And, and this word in Hebrew doesn't just mean like standing kind of aloof, just hanging out. Uh, it means that they're standing ready to serve. They're, they're attentive to him. They're ready to do what he calls them to do. And they have six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two for flying. Um, every word in the Bible is intentional, right? This is the inspired word of God to, by the word, right? It's not just some ideas. That, it, it's every single word is chosen by the Spirit of God to convey something, so each of these sets has a purpose. Um, I think two of them are rather obvious. The two for flying, they're, they're ready for service, right? Standing, ready to fly, to serve as the Lord calls them. The two, the two to cover their face, um, beautifully so. <laughs> even these incredibly glorious angels, they don't get to look at God. They can't. He's, he's too glorious even for these angelic beings to look at. So they have to cover their faces so that they will not be um, <laughs> destroyed <laughs> by the glory and holiness of God. And then the two for their feet, uh, there's a crazy amount of opinions about these. Uh, Honestly, in in all my studying, wasn't really able to land anywhere. My best bet is probably that it's just because culturally right feet would have been in dirt and muck. They were kind of gross. You wouldn't want to put those in the presence of someone as incredible as the Lord. But not only are these these burning ones honoring the Lord in their disposition, they're also doing it in song. Just like we did a few minutes ago, just like we'll be doing in a little bit here. Um, but before we get to that song, I want to just quickly touch on verse 4. Um, verse 4 helps to see just how powerful these burning ones actually are. Uh, their voices literally shake the building. This isn't human song. This is something totally different. Isaiah is seeing the temple of the Lord shaking as these angels sing out to one another. As for the smoke that fills the temple, this is another thing um, a lot of opinions on what it's there for. So I'm just going to defer to someone much smarter than I. Uh, John Calvin, great reformer, great theologian, wrote, "'Smoke was the common and ordinary sign "'which the Lord employed with his ancient people. "'For we read that, "'whenever Moses entered into the tabernacle, "'smoke was wont to be diffused through it "'in such a manner that the people could see "'neither Moses or the tabernacle. "'The smoke, therefore, which Isaiah describes, "'was not an unusual occurrence.'" but the ordinary way God intended to demonstrate that he would display his power in executing judgment on the people. So, right, it's a fitting symbol for a prophet who was called to go and declare judgment to the people of Judah, the same symbol that they would have seen whenever Moses went to commune with the Lord. So now let's, let's talk about this song. This is an incredible high point in this passage. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Alec Mateer, an Isaiah scholar in dealing with that, that threefold repetition writes, Hebrew uses repetition to express superlatives or to indicate totality. Holiness is supremely the truth about God. It's a key line. Holiness is supremely the truth about God. And his holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a, quote, super superlative has to be invented to express it. So God's holiness is so great that this, this Hebrew way of thinking where you, you say things twice to, to exemplify it, to draw attention, these, these seraphim, these burning ones have to do it three times just to kind of help Isaiah grasp the incredible holiness of God. And this isn't the only place where we see a song like this. The book of Revelation chapter 4, and the four living creatures... Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the consistent way in which we see the Lord worshiped in heaven. Here they also call him the the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Sabaoth, which It essentially just means the God of of armies, right? This is where we get this idea of the Lord leading this powerful force of of angels. Um, It is about his power. He's holy and he's powerful. And then the song continues that the whole earth is full of his glory. Another quote from Matir, holiness is God's hidden glory. Glory is God's all present holiness. Read that one more time. Holiness is God's hidden glory and glory is God's all-present holiness. I didn't quite get that quote when I first read it. (laughs) As I thought about it a little more, I ended up in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Here's your key verse. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Right? God's character is on display in in nature. His glory fills the whole earth. We we experience and see a, a small shadow of the glory of God in, in the stars, in the trees, um, in this beautiful rain we've been getting that will cause crops to grow. Right? We see the glory of the Lord in the way that his creation just works and is beautiful to look at. But beyond seeing his glory in creation and understanding his holiness that way, there is a greater extent to which we will never understand while we live in this world. And that's something that Isaiah was getting to glimpse on here, the holiness of God beyond what we can understand on earth in in these bodies, right, as finite people. So why holy, right? Like we said, there are two instances of, of these kind of heavenly songs, and in both cases the angels sing about the holiness of God. These beings that exist in his presence constantly have chosen that specific word, and that's worth thinking about for a little bit. Because these angels, I think, as maybe the, the North American church of, the, of this century would expect, they weren't singing that God is, is love, 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 or if you want to go to the other end of the spectrum, that God is just, just, just. They were singing of his holiness. All right, that's a pretty churchy word. Um, most of us hear it mostly in this context, or we, we throw it around and ascribe it to things that, that do not deserve the title, like holy cow or holy other things, right? We, we don't really have the, an understanding of the importance of this word and, and what we're ascribing to things when we say it in front of them. So the classic definition that many of us know is, is set apart. Um, it's good, but it, but it doesn't get us the whole way. Um, Jackie Hill Perry, uh, a great teacher, recently wrote a book about the holiness of God, Um, And she uses two definitions, one actually for children, which I'm going to use, and then one for adults. So kids, if any of you are still with me, um, if you want to know what it means that God is holy, it means that he is good and that he is special. And, And for those of you adults who maybe want a little more to be able to help your kids grasp this, it means that God is morally pure and he is transcendent. Right These are two things that humanity is not. We're, we're not remotely morally pure. I think think we're all pretty quick to acknowledge that. Um, and we have no hope of transcendency, though though we try to pursue it in weird ways in our culture today, um, we will never reach the heights of God. So it's a key part of, of His holiness, of his being totally different from us. So this is the only place from which creator or creation can interact with creator. Right? We, we don't get to approach God as if he's like us. We don't get to approach him flippantly or casually. Uh, we don't get to command him, to, to tell him what to do, to judge his decisions. He gets those privileges because he is other. We are, we're just creation. We have to approach him as God. You know, There's a reason a little earlier on that I chose to use loving and just as the things that the angels don't sing about. It's because it, those tend to be the two camps of emphasis in the church today. Right? So you have one side. God is love. So he's always going to affirm, of all my behavior, I can do whatever I want. Uh, we're all going to be saved. And it's, it's really fluffy, and it's a God made in the image of, of us. Um, or God is just, and you get the hellfire and brimstone, and there's, there's no grace. It's screaming about sin with, with no presentation of the gospel. And once again, that's a God made in our image. But God's holiness allows him to hold these Loving and just, and every other one of his attributes in in perfect harmony. There's no conflict, there's no contradiction, there's there's no sin in his justice, and there's no license in his love. God always acts in accordance with his nature, and his nature is holy. So we should learn from Isaiah how to respond to the Lord's holiness. Because I think if you've never heard this passage before and, and you're reading and you're kind of preparing yourself for what's next. You know, we would think, oh, Isaiah, you know, he sees the Lord. Of course, his first response is to, to, to bow, right? To, to throw himself on the ground before the Lord and start worshiping. Uh, or maybe he's going to start singing, right? He'd, he'd probably have a bunch of psalms memorized. He's just going to start belting out the psalms for the Lord and the angels to hear. Um, or maybe just, just stunned silence. Maybe he'll just stand in the presence of God, just, just taking it in. But he responds in fear and repentance, Isaiah 6, verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. (laughs) I sometimes wonder, when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, if he realized how profound one specific line was. I know if you've been listening to Darren's podcast, he referenced this relatively recently, but in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in a conversation between two characters, one of them shares with the other that that Aslan, this this God character, is good, but he is not safe. And that's what Isaiah is grasping right now. Right? Because we've already established that Isaiah was a faithful follower of Yahweh. This is not a conversion story. This is not someone who has never understood their own sinfulness, who has never worshipped the Lord, being put in his presence, and just being shocked to the point of thinking that they are completely dead. This is a man who loves the Lord already. And this is a story of a believer more fully grasping the depth of his sin in the light of a greater understanding of the holiness of God. The focus on his unclean lips might seem a little weird, but we've got to keep in mind that this is a prophet. His entire role is to speak for God. So I'm sure the first thing on his mind is, oh my gosh, my lips are sinful. These things that are speaking the very words of God to people and, and his wrath will burn out against my unclean, sinful lips. And Isaiah understood in this moment that his sin deserved immediate death, right? I'm, I'm preaching out of the ESV um, and it says, woe is me for I am lost. It's a, it's a bad translation. I don't really know what they're doing with that, This word is much closer to destroyed. I think the KJV translates it, uh, woe is me for I am undone. That's the intensity that Isaiah is working with here. He thinks he's dead. As far as he can tell, God is holy. He can see it. He's a sinner. He's dead. That's all he's got left. (laughs) But there's hope, right? Sin cannot exist in the presence of God, but there is still hope. In this story, Isaiah chapter six, verses six and seven, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay, so these burning ones stand at attention, ready to, to do what God calls them to do. So we can only assume that the reason the seraphim is doing this is that God has commanded it to do so. So it takes the coal, touches Isaiah's lips, purifies him. Um, there's there's nothing special about the seraphim. There's nothing special about the coal. This is an image that God is giving Isaiah to help him understand exactly what is happening. His sin was being covered. That's what that word atoned means. It's super important. His sin is being covered by the grace of God as a result of the repentant heart that he put on display in the verse right before. So once again, some of you who maybe know your Bibles a little better might, might have alarm bells going off. Um, Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there's, there's no forgiveness of sins. Well, there's, there's no shedding of blood here. There's no sacrifice, right? This is before Jesus has died. So we might have some questions, right? How, how could his sins be forgiven? How could he be atoned for? And as we start to look at this passage in light of the rest of Scripture, we see the beautiful picture of the gospel that comes together here in a way that Isaiah just didn't quite understand yet right? Later in life, Isaiah would prophesy Isaiah chapter 53, right? He was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And the suffering servant that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 53 was the same son of God that he saw enthroned here in Isaiah chapter 6. As he prophesied in Isaiah 53, of the way that his sin would be dealt with forever, permanently, by one sacrifice. He was prophesying, essentially, back on how his sins could have been forgiven in Isaiah 6 without sacrifice. Right? So let's not make this mistake. Anyone who has ever been forgiven of their sins was forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Old Testament believers were saved in exactly the same way that we are today. And we know this because we have Hebrews 10, verse 4 which says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, right? So, so all those sacrifices they did, they were a shadow. They, they pointed to something else. They reminded them of what was uh, to come, but, but they didn't actually take that sin away. He, or Romans chapter 3 is what gives us an insight into how all of this worked, and it's absolutely beautiful. Starting from a verse that we all know quite well, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In the Lord's divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He ignored them. Much in the same way that in the story of the Exodus, right, any of the, the Jews who would paint the blood over their doorposts, the angel of the Lord would, would pass over their house, would ignore their sin, because trust me, the people of Israel and Egypt were not holy. They were not living up to the standards of the Lord. But, if they covered their doorposts in blood, if they showed faith in what God was going to do, their sins were ignored. They were passed over until the time that they could be properly dealt with, with the death of the Messiah, the sacrifice that paid for every sin from the first one that Adam and Eve committed to the last one that we will be committed before his return. This is the beauty of the gospel that we see in Isaiah chapter six, that, that the very man or the very God, who he saw enthroned in this vision would be the very man who would die to atone for his sin that was atoned for in verses 6 and 7. It's a beautiful twist that Isaiah never could have expected because the infinitely glorious and holy Son of God who he was seeing would go to the cross to forgive his unclean lips. He, He was in the presence of his Redeemer and he didn't even know it. And then he responds, Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Just a quick note on the word us. I'm happy to say that this is about the Trinity, right? Making a point about the plurality of God. But I'm more interested in how Isaiah responds. Because moments ago, literally a couple verses ago, Isaiah, in his mind, was as good as dead. He was, he was trembling before the Lord. He did not want to be seen. He knew he was a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And then with one act, the act of atonement, he goes from trembling in fear to confidently calling out to have God look at him, right? Here I am. He's, he's drawing the attention of the Lord on himself. When the very thought of his gaze terrified him moments earlier, now it excited him and he was ready to do what the Lord would call him to do. Because when your sins are forgiven by the grace of God, it, it changes how you interact with him. We see this, I think, most clearly in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, this is exactly what Isaiah was experiencing when his sins were covered by the blood of Jesus long before he even fully understood what the blood of Jesus would mean it increased his confidence before the Lord. He knew that even in the sight of a holy God, he could exist as a sinner. Something had changed. That's, that's the key to atonement, to his sin being covered. It's not that he's no longer sinful. It's that, well, in, in an image that my mom gave me when I was growing up that has stuck with me forever, it's not that, that my sin is, is completely gone in that moment. It's that when the heavenly father gazes on us, Jesus steps in the way and he sees the righteousness of Christ instead of our sinfulness. That's what Isaiah got to experience in Isaiah chapter 6. As the story goes on, or as this passage goes on in verses 9 through 13, um, the Lord tells Isaiah what he has just essentially volunteered himself for, uh, and it sucks. Uh, Isaiah is called to go and prophesy to the people that they're going to ignore his prophecies, to to tell them that their hearts are going to be hardened, and they're going to choose not to listen, and they're not going to see they will remain stubborn, and wrath and punishment will pour out for their unrepentant sin. But, as we've already said, there is hope in the prophecies of Isaiah. It leads to the prophecies about the coming Messiah who would atone for all of the failures of Israel, who would make it so that the wrath of God would never be poured out against those who believe in him. And this vision, no surprise, had a massive impact on Isaiah. and in, in fact, it led to him Uh, using a title for God that we essentially only see in the book of Isaiah. I think once or twice other biblical authors use it, but um, Isaiah uses it, I think, what, like almost 20 times. He refers to God as the Holy One of Israel, right? This one vision completely changed how he viewed God. It, It changed how he approached prophesying, how he approached writing. He would remind the people over and over again of the holiness of God. But how should it change us? And I think it requires balance, right? Because we can never forget the holiness of God, even with our sins being covered and being able to approach with confidence. Uh, we don't get to be flippant, right? We, we don't get to dabble with sin. We don't get to sin so that grace may abound. We don't get to, to kind of play around with it and then trust that the Lord, again, will just sign off on it because, you know, I believe in Jesus so I can just go on sinning. Um, God is not to be trifled with. He's not anything like us, right? The, the only similarity is that we were made in his image, which makes him still creator and us still creature. The Lord must be honored in all that we do. That's what holiness demands, is our lives sold out for the sake of his holiness. But to balance that, he is a loving father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. So we should approach with confidence but reverent confidence is key. Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor, wrote, you are before the Lord. Let your words be few, but let your heart be fervent. Because of the work of Christ, because his blood covers all of our sin, we will one day approach God in the way that Isaiah got to here. And we won't need to respond how he initially did with the fear of of being burnt up by the holiness of god because christ's righteousness is given to us we can be confident not by any means of our own not by anything we've done not by any righteousness that we can attain but because of the righteousness of the son of god that isaiah saw enthroned in isaiah chapter six and just as a side note this is usually given as a as a sermon about you know going and doing missions work which is good missions work is really good wasn't really what I was focusing on here, but we better be ready to serve no matter what we are called to do, to sacrifice anything and everything for the sake of his cause. Because the Holy One of Israel is worth everything. He is worth giving up everything. Don't be deceived. We are called to be holy as he is holy and called to be perfect as he is perfect. Well, how we approach him must be balanced The extent to which we pursue holiness must not be because we are called to (laughs) exemplify this this holy, holy, holy God in how we live. It's it's all in or all out. It's either radical or, or not at all. It's a lifestyle of coming back to the word again and again to remind yourself of the holiness of God and the grace of God together and being transformed by the Spirit through that truth. I just wish that someone had told high school Daniel that a little bit sooner. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. Jesus, you are holy. Spirit, you are holy. And we are not. But Lord Jesus, by your blood, we are made that way. I pray that we would understand your holiness better. That would lead us to more worship to more willingness to serve in whatever ways you have called us to, to to more willingness to just act as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Father, as we sing this song, give us a glimpse of your holiness. Help us to sing as those who are given confidence to approach your throne because of the truths of this passage. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for this vision that you gave, this prophet that still speaks to us today. Pray that we would be transformed by it. Amen.